Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. Hey, thanks everyone. You can have a seat. If you haven't met, my name is Michael, one of the leaders here. Hey, is, is it cold? Are we cold outside? It's not cold, is it? Or it's pretty cold out, I know. We love to uh, complain about uh, how cold it is in January. We want to thank you for just being here and making the point even that with the snow and the cold to just trek out and uh, just make it a priority to learn and to worship with us. Uh, this morning we're continuing a series we started last week that we're calling About New Beginnings and uh, we're doing something as a church that we actually haven't done before at the 180 which is to look back to the very first uh, verses of the Bible and to kind of study the book of Genesis Uh, and the story of creation. And one of the challenges that we feel, uh, we've even talked about or felt in preparing for this seri series, maybe you feel this as well, but there's often two common kind of attitudes or approaches to the, the creation story that we kind of have to reconcile. One is you either see the book of Genesis and the creation story as this thing that's meant to answer all your creation, all your questions about the universe and how things started and all the details and to even use that to prove something to others. Or kind of maybe on the other extreme, the attitude is like, why does this even matter? Like, this is totally irrelevant for me. Why should I even care about this story? I don't know where you kind of sit in either of those. For me, growing up, I was very much the second one. I grew up going to church, and I remember learning about the creation story uh, in Sunday school. And the image that kind of came to mind right away, maybe it was a similar one, uh, of, of Sunday school was like Adam and Eve with leaves on. Just wearing leaves from the tree, put an image up. Maybe you think of like a similar image. Kind of just like, feels childish. Like they're wearing leaves, there's an apple tree, there's a serpent. Like what's going on here? And I remember for me, obviously, there, you know, some of those illustrations can be really helpful. And my Sunday school teachers were trying to kind of simplify things to help me. But I think what happened for me was that uh, what I learned in Sunday school felt like this story should just stay in Sunday school. It was too simple. It wasn't really answering any of the more complex questions that I had. And so it kind of felt to me like I didn't care about it. It was irrelevant. I ignored it. And I think years later when people then asked me, like, what do you believe about God? Or what do you believe about kind of the beginning of things? I didn't know what to say. And I didn't know what to answer. Like, did I believe this really oversimplified story? Or was there something that I was missing? And there, were there deep, profound truths, actually, that I, that I was forgetting about or that I hadn't learned? And it wasn't until later, as I kind of was taught some of these more biblical principles, that I recognized kind of what the story was saying and what it was not saying. That really helped me kind of open my eyes to these profound truths that were here about who God is and about my place in the world and who we are as humans. And so we just really hope, I don't know where you are kind of on that journey, but we hope our prayer is that as we're going through this series on the book of Genesis, it really helps you as well to kind of begin to uh, maybe even rethink some of your assumptions 
about the story of Genesis, maybe even recognize or identify some barriers that have kept you from really growing and learning about it in a more profound way. And so this is kind of a value that's really important for us as a church that we help you to do this. And it's such an important value that uh, we, we kind of think about this whenever we approach any part of our Bible. And this is actually why we do Bible studies. We hope that we can pass on some biblical principles that help you actually grow in confidence as you read different parts of your Bible and help you understand kind of what the Bible is saying and honor that and what it's not saying as well and that that would help you to grow and really stretch you. And uh, so we hope that in this series, as we're going through the book of Genesis, this is going to stretch you just in this, this Sunday series as well. And one of the things that we've asked you to do, maybe if you remember if you were here last week, but is to just read, we give you some homework. We like to do that sometimes. Uh, give you some homework and just to read the first 11 chapters of Genesis on your own and see what comes up, see what questions emerge. And another thing we thought would help that as, as you're doing that, as we're going through the, the, this series, is you can send us in some questions. We thought maybe that would help you, uh, questions that, that kind of come up for you. If you think of any, you can actually email us, send them to info at the 180.ca. Okay, you can write that down. If you forget it, it's on our website, info at the As we go through, just send it for our questions. And our hope is that as we get towards the end of this series, we can actually take some time to answer some, some of those questions and hope that would really help you. Um, so as we continue really now this morning in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, and we look at the creation story, it is important right away to recognize that at its core, this story is really teaching us, again, profound truths about who God is and about who we are and our place in that. And that should shape even how we live today. And so if you remember last week, we started in chapter 1. We looked at God as this God who creates in this special way. And this week we're going to move to chapter 2. And maybe you notice this if you've begun to kind of read Genesis a little bit on your own. But maybe you notice that in chapter 1, it actually gives us a full account of the creation story. But then surprisingly in chapter 2, it gives us all, another one all over again. Maybe you notice that. Maybe your question is like, why would that happen in the Bible? Why would they start with one and then there's another one? I had that same question. Like, did, the God, did, did God or the writers of Genesis make a mistake? How do we understand these two together? Is one more accurate than the other? What does this mean? Right? But one biblical principle we want you to remember right away and that will continue to remind you in this series is that the book of Genesis isn't trying to answer all your questions about the beginning of all things and all the details and how that happened. Instead, because we have a limited understanding, we're, we're, we're finite beings, God, kind of in his grace, is giving us different perspectives or different layers in order to help us pay attention to different things and to point out different things that he wants, us, wants to teach us. And so this is actually what's happening in chapter 2. Instead of it contradicting what we learned about in chapter 1, it's actually giving us a new perspective and complementing those things. And so really quick, before we look at chapter 2, uh, I want to just add as well, again, maybe you remember this from last week, if you didn't uh, hear the message last week, you can go back and listen to it. But when you track the story of creation, it starts off by giving us uh, what's called the firmament, which is like the house or the environment that God creates. And then after that, God begins to kind of, it tells us how God begins to uh, put things in their place with certain roles and kind of fill that firmament or that space. And in chapter 2, there's a particular focus now on how God creates human beings and particularly how he then relates to us at human beings. And we're going to look at it this morning. And so here's uh, what it says right near the beginning of chapter 2 about how he created humanity. This is what it says. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became 
a living being. Wow. Maybe you're hearing that for this first time. It can make it sound like a strange way to kind of introduce how humans were created. But the imagery that's used here is actually really, really important, particularly because it compares to the ancient creation stories that would have been well known at the time. Uh, if you were here last week, Pastor Dom talked about that a little bit. He shared a few with us, a few kind of common creation stories from the surrounding cultures, like Egypt or Babylon. And uh, he talked about how you need to know that these stories exist in order to understand how different the story of Genesis is and how the Jewish people understood their God and what he's trying to tell us about that. And where you really notice this difference is in the way, particularly, he talks about how humanity is formed. And I want to give you kind of a couple examples from some of these other creation stories so you can see what a stark difference there is between the two. Here's uh, just the first example is from the Epic of Atrahasis, it's called. Uh, it comes from the, the, the Sumerian culture, ancient Sumerians. And it's this um, story where in the story, it's kind of similar to Genesis, but very different at the same time. Humans are kind of made from a combination of clay, but along with that, they're made from the blood of a demon god and the spit of another god. Okay, pretty wild, pretty crazy. Uh, and then another one is the Enuma Elish, which Pastor Don brought up last week, which is the Babylonian story. And in this one, humans are made because there's these two gods that are like competing with each other. They're at war. And one god vanquishes the other god. And the, the other gods that exist decide to take the blood of this vanquished god and use it to make humans in order for the humans to serve them. Okay? Very, very different from what we find in the, the book of Genesis. And these stories actually give us a particular kind of picture of humanity, of something that's created or born out of evil or something that's despised by the gods, or these people who are, who are just meant to be used or taken advantage of by the other gods. And in contrast, in the book of Genesis, it gives us this powerful image, and you can put the verse up again, of a god who, t- who starts off by making us from the dust of the ground, meaning he uses his own creation, which he says is good, to, to make us, and then along with that, he breathes his own life into us. It's a picture of just this relational, intimate God who actually shares, he loves us so much, he shares his own life with us in order to create us. This picture of this intimate, relational God who wants relationship with us, who doesn't compete with us, who doesn't want to just use us or take advantage of us, but wants this relationship with us and who even shares with us. And not only that, but after he creates us and he wants this relationship, he invites us really to participate with him in a special way and play a special role in, 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 uh, along with what he's doing. And here's what it says next in chapter 2. This is what happens. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, I just want to focus on the first part of that. First, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to, to work it and to take care of it. So God creates humanity in this very particular way, with this particular imagery, but he also gives us a special role, which is to tend and preserve God's goodness or the good things that he has created and that he's given us to look after. And it's an incredible responsibility that right from the beginning, instead of of God just doing everything on his own, which he could have done, he actually gives us out of his love for us, some of this responsibility to participate with him in a special way. And as those people who are not only part of God's creation, but we also represent him in a special way to the rest of creation. 
And a helpful word, maybe as you think about, you could write this down, but a helpful word for this role that he gives humanity is that we become co-creators with him. God creates, and we looked at this last week, that God creates kind of in a unique, special way that only he can do, yet at the same time, he invites us to participate in his continuing work of creating, of creating good things, uh, and intending to the good things that he's created for us to enjoy. And so in this story, God gives Adam this special role, gives humanity this special role, but not only that, he also places him or humanity or Adam in a particular context, which in the story is the garden. In the garden, God promises, not only does he give him this role, but he promises to walk with him, to be with him, to be present with him in the garden, and to provide for him for all his needs as Adam learns to depend on God and to trust him as, as he tends and cares for the good things God has entrusted him with. And the book of Genesis is telling us something actually in that about something that God still does with each of us today, that he is the God who carefully places us in particular places. He places us in particular contexts that we would learn to trust him and depend on him for strength and for him to provide for us as we learn to care for the things that he's put in our place, as we learn to cultivate his good gifts in our lives and participate in this ongoing creative work. But there's one thing, uh, maybe you notice this from when you look at the test, but one thing that I really have a hard time with uh, that's here, it's that in the garden where God places Adam, he also places him with limits or restrictions. If you read it again, God tells Adam not to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it really bothers me, actually. Like, why would God have this here? Why would he place this restriction on Adam in the garden that's supposed to be such a great place? Why is this limit already here? And the craziest part, maybe you notice this, but God actually introduces this limit before kind of things fall apart, which we'll get to in chapter 3. Already there's this limit here. Why? I think this is really hard for us to understand or to wrap our heads around, uh, particularly in our modern world where we see all limits or all boundaries or all restrictions as inherently a bad thing. Our world is designed or, or kind of shaped us in a way that we always see them as something that are just on their own inherently bad. Our world even idolizes a certain kind of freedom from those things that thinks you're only really free to kind of flourish and to find joy and to be happy and to grow if it means no restrictions, no limits, no boundaries, complete autonomy and complete independence from anything. And any kind of dependence at all we see as something that makes us weak or something that restricts us in a big way or makes us feel trapped or kind of brings us down. And because of this, I think so many of us actually struggle with this temptation as we think about where we're placed or we think about commitments to run from long-term commitments, to constantly be, looking for, constantly be looking for something else or someone else to make our lives better, a different spouse or a different job or some kind of different situation, or to even like, believe the lie that somehow we've been placed in the wrong family or we've been placed in the wrong country or wrong city, or maybe we've even been placed in the wrong era. Ever talk to somebody that thinks they, they should be in the 1800s? Like, that's really where I, you know. So God got it wrong. That's where I should be. But we're all tempted by these ideas to think this way. But God instead gives us this picture of humans who are meant to flourish actually with certain limits. As I was thinking about this, one image that came to mind that was helpful for me 
that was brought up to me once is that where we kind of more inherently get this in our culture is when you think about sports. Sports, we know, includes certain rules, and we kind of understand that they're there uh, for a good reason. They actually help. The game kind of wouldn't work without certain rules in place, right? There would be total chaos. Uh, and as I was thinking about this, you know, I think about my oldest daughter who uh, really kind of fell in love with watching hockey with me. Go Habs Go, the only team to cheer for. Uh, if, you felt, if you watched Leafs, you probably didn't fall in love with them. But, uh, no, maybe you did, but you shouldn't have. Uh, but my, my daughter really, really loves watching hockey uh, with me. And one of the things that she did early on that I noticed is that when she began to watch it, at first she was quite confused, but the more she watched, she asked me lots of questions about the rules, just as she watched more and more questions about how everything works, and the more that she understood how the game worked within these certain limits or boundaries, the more she actually loved the game, because the more that she could really appreciate and understand what was happening. And maybe, maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe you felt this if you've played any sport, that the more you grow in understanding the rules and learning how they work, the more that you know how to kind of play within them and enjoy the game within them and be creative even within them, come up with different strategies and different ways of doing things. This, I think, is uh, really kind of an example of what we see in Genesis and a picture of a God who gives us similar kinds of limits or boundaries, that they're meant actually to be there so that we can trust and depend on him more within those limits, and that they're there to help us kind of uh, because, recognizing that there are some things that are too big for us to understand or to handle safely And these limits are there to actually help us kind of guide us to flourish or to grow or to be creative in a certain direction. And that doesn't mean that all restrictions in our world are inherently good, not the other extreme, but but that God, we see right from the beginning, God is the kind of God who actually places us in context with certain limits uh, that we can actually trust, that we can trust and learn to depend on him within those limits. One author that I've read before that I really love describes this in a certain way, this idea of how we understand freedom versus how, you know, kind of a healthier understanding of freedom is freedom from versus freedom for. Our culture really just teaches us freedom from, but God and the book of Genesis invites us more into a freedom for. Freedom from means just freedom from any limits, any boundaries, any of those things, whereas freedom, and sees that as a way to really kind of flourish, whereas freedom for is rooted in learning to trust and to depend on God more and more and to see that he actually gives us certain limits out of his love for us. And they're limits that actually set us free to participate with him more in cultivating the good gifts in our lives and in choosing to do the right things in ways that help us to grow and flourish and experience kind of life to the full. It's a picture of a God who, who does this even to help us grow in creativity and finding joy in some of those things. So as you think about this, and as we look at the book of Genesis of a God who places us in certain places with certain limits, where has God placed you? Where has he placed you maybe particularly in this season of your life? As you think about certain situations or certain relationships, certain, certain things that come to mind. What comes to mind? Because wherever he's placed you, Genesis tells us that it's not by accident. 
even with the kind of those restrictions that you may feel. It's not by accident. And the temptation, again, at different times in our lives is to turn from those things or to run away or to look for, for different responsibility, different places to run from some of those responsibilities or that special role that he's given you. To see the limits as somehow hindering your freedom or keeping you from growing in some way. It's a temptation to just run from commitment, to constantly looking, be looking outside of those healthy boundaries you've been given. But again, instead, the book of Genesis really introduces to us to a God who places us with great care and with a special role for the people and the situations in our lives. And he promises, as he places us there, to provide for us in a special way, to give us a certain kind of strength as we learn to tend to those good things. So what would it look like for you just this coming year to depend on God more with the things that he's placed in front of you, with the special role or responsibility maybe he's asking you to play in that place? Genesis really gives us a picture of a God who creates humanity in a certain way with a relationship with him, a special role, and a way of just depending and trusting in him. Um, But it also then introduces us to a kind of relational intimacy and even a kind of special dependence uh, where we learn to depend on one another. And what happens next in, in chapter 2, you can read it on your own, I won't cover it, but uh, next what happens is that uh, God kind of gives Adam this special rule of naming the animals. It's really, really beautiful. And it's this example of like how, how Adam's already using one of the gifts God gives, which is the gift of language, to play this special role as his co-creator in naming some of the the animals. Uh, But even as Adam is doing this, God kind of recognizes that Adam needs someone else to really share in this gift and these responsibilities with. And so he creates, da-da-da-da, woman. Is that great? Nobody cares. You're like, boo. No, he creates woman. It's really, really exciting. Uh, And this this is what he says. This is what happens. This is how he does it. It says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Isn't that beautiful? Adam is like so overwhelmed in this moment that he actually begins to speak in poetry, which is exactly what I did on my wedding day. I don't know why you guys are laughing. Like, that's what I did. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. I might have shed a tear. But, uh, but Adam's so overwhelmed that he, begin, he says these beautiful uh, words in speaking in, in poetry. And uh, he's so overwhelmed, I think, because he recognizes that God has made someone so special that now Adam can share his life with them. And by telling us in this story how the woman is made, the book is actually telling us something really important about how Adam then sees and understands her. The, the Hebrew word for, if you don't remember, this is okay, but just kind of go deeper for a second. The Hebrew word for rib that's used here is the word tzela, and it can be translated in English as rib, but it's also commonly translated just as side, just as side. And so what the, uh, often many scholars will point out as they look at this is that it's really, really significant that in Genesis, it doesn't say that the woman comes from uh, Adam's head as if she's somehow superior to him in some way. It doesn't say that, Eve, that the woman comes from Adam's feet as is if she's inferior in some way, but that she comes from his side as his equal. Isn't that beautiful? 
And this is why Adam is so overwhelmed, because he sees someone in this way that he can now share this deep relational intimacy with. He sees someone that he can share language with, who understand, who can be not just physically intimate with, but mentally and emotionally and spiritually intimate with, who understands him in a deep way and who can even share in the special purpose that God has given them. It points to how even just us in general as humans are designed or created to live in deep and meaningful harmony and interdependence and relationship with one another. Uh, and then after introducing the woman, the book of Genesis kind of does something surprising. Uh, this story then focuses in on a particular kind of relationship, which is the gift of marriage. Really, really beautiful. And we'll look at what it says next. This is what it says. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe you've heard that verse before. It's often used at weddings. And the Bible even later on refers to this verse from the beginning of Genesis uh, in talking about the context of marriage and in teaching about marriage. But I don't know about you, but when I looked at this at first glance or when I kind of see where it's placed in Genesis, it kind of feels out of place, doesn't it? Like, why is it already talking about fathers and mothers when there are no fathers and mothers yet? Do you ever think about it? Like, why is this here? It feels out of place. And I think part of the reason why, that's important for us to understand, but why marriage is highlighted here in this particular way in this place is because it points to how God is actually preparing humanity for things that are still to come. He's actually preparing them for things that he's still going to create. Things like children and a family and recognizing how Adam and Eve will now find kind of their place in tending to those things, in caring for those good gifts as they learn to be in relationship with God and with one another. And I think marriage is also highlighted here as a reminder that maybe if you're here and if you are married, your marriage isn't just for you. Your marriage is actually a witness to this communal and relational God who created us for relationship with us, him at the center, but he also created us in our marriage as co-creators. This is something that young couples, when they're getting married, often don't think about or understand right away when they're preparing for marriage. Often they're thinking about other things, you know, how much they just love each other and feel for each other, or they're thinking about, like, future life when they get a home, you know, if they get a house together. Today, that's definitely going to be an apartment, not a house. They're thinking about those things. Um, and they're not, you know, thinking about fun things to have together, but they're not thinking about the fact that their marriage is not just for them and how they feel about each other. It's for other people. Your marriage is not just for you. And the kind of unity that you foster is not just about being happy together. Your relationship is actually a place of mediating God's presence to the rest of the world, to the people around you, whether that's family or neighbors or friendships or whatever that is. You are now his co-creators in your marriage. And if you go back to that, if you look at that verse again, it's saying not only that marriages are really important, but it points to a particular movement that's really important when you think about relationships and particularly when you think about marriage. Maybe you noticed it. It says that the movement is from leaving father and mother to being united with your spouse, special way, to becoming one flesh. This movement is really important because it's a reminder that marriage requires movement. It requires leaving some things behind in order to start a new life. It requires sacrifice. It requires a new kind of loyalty to one another. It even requires a new kind of trust and dependence 
on one another. And I think if you're married, the temptation as time goes by uh, is to think that this isn't important. But the movement is still really, really important and it really needs to be cultivated all the time. It's tempting if you're married to feel like after a certain amount of times, things just happen on their own. Or you can just go into autopilot and think, think, think things will continue to get better or at least things will continue to be the same. Or if you're kind of newly married, again, you can think that your interests or your feelings alone, alone are enough to draw you closer and to keep drawing you closer to one another. But it really takes more than that. It's a kind of intentionally, intentionality or movement that if it isn't cultivate, then you actually begin to move in the wrong direction. Things begin to grow apart or certain things kind of begin to almost feel dead or start to suffer in some way. So I was thinking about this. One of the kind of helpful images that I think God has given us is just the image of a plant in nature. I have a little plant that I put on my office, in my kind of office at home. It's a really kind of simple plant. I don't know what it's called. You'd have to ask my wife. Uh, But she gave it to me partly because it's really easy to take care of. But I noticed, uh, maybe you've had a similar experience, but I was away uh, a couple weeks ago, and very, very quickly, when I got back, I noticed how quickly things, uh, how, how quickly the plant began to suffer. Like, I noticed that the leaves were beginning to droop, and they were withering, and they were drying up. And along with the kind of the healthier leaves, there were even these other leaves that started to sprout that were the wrong color. They were like anemic. There was something wrong with them. And very, very quickly, I noticed just how much, you know, it was a reminder of how much I had to just, how quickly that happened because I didn't water it, because I wasn't there to take care of it. And I noticed that this picture I actually took after I, like the day later that I gave it water again, I noticed how quickly then the leaves began to have new life and be restored and kind of, uh, even prune some, off, some of those old leaves off. And I think it's such a good image that God gives us naturally for how relationships work. Because they too need to be regularly cultivated in the same way in order to, to flourish. And while older time there are certain things that will kind of feel like they almost begin to grow more naturally or almost automatically, or things that you don't have to pay as much attention to in certain seasons over others, your relationship will still need this kind of regular attention to pay attention to areas that are starting to wither or die or to pay attention to areas that need pruning or that need rewatering or reseeding. The fact that I think Adam, is placed in, uh, Adam and Eve are placed in a garden is such a powerful image of this kind of cultivating because they don't only need to cultivate the other good gifts that they've been given, but they need to cultivate relationship with one another as well. But as we think about this and we look at this verse, it's not just true of marriages, it's also true of relationships in general. And I think one of the things that we, we've been guilty of or we can be guilty of as churches is to almost overemphasize or only see this story through the lens of marriage, as important as marriage is. But the church also needs to do a good job of celebrating both marriage and singleness together. Jesus himself actually modeled this really, really well for us. Because Jesus actually, uh, um, at a certain point, refers to this verse in Genesis to talk about marriage, to talk about the sanctity of marriage and how important marriages are to kind of flourish and to grow. But at the same time, we know that Jesus himself was single. And so we as a church need to be able to kind of hold those things together, to be able to celebrate marriages and recognize how they fit within the church but also to recognize that singleness is also a difficult but special 
calling. And it's our job to make room for those who are single and are called to singleness in order to help them to flourish and recognize that they too are invited into community with God and the rest of the church. In the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul actually references the verse in Genesis as well in one of his uh, letters. Again, he does this at first to talk about marriage, but then he does it in a very surprising way. He uses this, this verse and this image of marriage to say that as the church, in communion with one another, we are now like Jesus' bride. It's this beautiful, beautiful image. And he uses this image to say that as the church, as we learn to follow Jesus, we're united to Christ in a deep and mysterious way. And that actually redefines our relationships and how we learn to be in communion with one another. This is so powerful because in a world that says that depending on one another is weak, that real strength is not depending on anyone, the church then becomes a place where we learn to depend on one another. And it gives actually new meaning to our different relationships as we learn to honor marriages, as we learn to honor families, and as we learn to honor those who are single, Jesus invites us into communion together in a new and beautiful and powerful way. And so our role as a church is to really take all these relationships seriously, to give room for those who are single while helping marriages and families to flourish, as well as we all learn to depend on God and to keep him at the center. This really isn't easy to do, and I think particularly in the church, I felt this, maybe you felt this before as well, but the temptation is almost to disconnect loving God with loving and honoring other relationships. Maybe you felt this. I think this is actually part of the reason why when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he's thinking back to how God created things. When he says he doesn't give one commandment, he actually in response gives two. He says the greatest commandment is love God with all your mind, your heart, your strength. Love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. He keeps those two things connected for a very special reading, reason. It's important to connect those two things, to recognize they actually go hand in hand because we're created for both. And we're created to do both together for communion with God and with one another. And, and when one of those things is violated, something happens to us in our relationships. You can't grow in just loving God without growing in loving other people. I don't know about you, but kind of being part of the church, growing up in church, I have, I have to confess that I've done this at times. I've disconnected these two things. And it's really, really tempting to do and kind of easy to do. Where at times it's been easier just to pray to God while leaving something with my wife unaddressed. Ignoring that that was even there or even attention. Just to continue to pray to God and ignore that. Or I've been tempted at times to kind of come and sing praises to God while continuing to not show grace or not forgive one of my children. Or I've been tempted to kind of like serve God in a certain way without asking for forgiveness from my neighbor or pay attention to a family member in a different way. Maybe you've had a a, a similar temptation or experience as well. But the book of creation, like the, the book of Genesis and the story of creation reminds us how important it is to keep these two things together. To love God and to really cultivate and to be intentional about loving one another. Because you can't ignore one for the sake of the other. Right from the beginning of Genesis, God creates us for this deep intimacy and dependence on him as we learn to do this together. So as you think about this, as we kind of come near the end of the book, as you think about maybe just your own relationships, maybe it's your own marriage, 
or a relationship with a family member or a friend? What is maybe just one next step God is asking you to take to be more intentional about cultivating that relationship? To be more intentional maybe about repairing something that's, that's come between you. To be more intentional about just cultivating an area that you've ignored. Maybe it's just a really practical step of sending a note, sending a text or a quick note to somebody that comes to mind that God's not wanting you to pay attention to. Maybe it's even just making a point to go out for coffee with somebody or to go on a date. Or maybe it's for you that the, the idea of being part of a church community is really new to you. And so the next step this year is just to make it priority to be present with other people in the church and to be creative about what that looks like. Maybe for you, though, it's something that's more painful. It's thinking about praying, about reconciliation, or about forgiveness. When even though you don't see how that works out, you need to trust and depend on God in a new way. And just trust Him with that step of just beginning even to pray about it. What is that for you? As we wrap up, chapter 2 kind of ends with this uh, last sentence that I want us to look at that really points to what relational intimacy is meant to look like. Here's what it says. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's a kind of a, a, maybe a surprising way to end. It's not saying we should all join a nudist colony or that we should all go back to the garden and do this. But it is this beautiful, rich image that God designed us for this kind of relational intimacy that means that we can be vulnerable with one another. That means that we don't need to hide from one another. And as painful and difficult this is and messy as this feels, this is God's design and plan for us that we would grow in cultivating this. Not only in our relationships in our marriage, not only with our family members, but as a church, we would even take seriously what it means to be the kind of place that gives room for those who maybe come from a painful experience where all they want to do is hide. Or to make room for those who feel like they've never been given a place before. Or to give room for those who feel far from their other family or relationships. That, that we would recognize that as the church, God has created us to be the place where we can find deep community with one another. But that takes real work. And it takes us taking seriously how we were created. That we were created to love God and to learn to love one another. Whatever that looks like. Whatever sacrifice that takes whatever change, that we would really take that seriously. And so as we think about that, we think about what that means for us today, I just want to invite you as we end to just pray with me. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are just an amazing, majestic, beautiful God. And we thank you for the gift of just uh, going back to the scriptures and learning about how you've created us and how you uh, just long for greater intimacy with us. And so just help us as we think about the different places, the different contexts where you have placed each of us, that uh, you would help us to see that you give us certain guidelines or boundaries that are meant to help us to really experience true freedom to flourish and to grow and to cultivate the good things that you've given us. Gifts of family or friends or just different situations. Help us to really trust and depend on you more and more in those moments as we think about just how tempting it can be to run from those things or to run from those responsibilities. And God, help us as well as we think about 
relationships, to take seriously what it means to cultivate those. And as we do that, to trust that you want to provide for us in new ways, that you want to give us a certain strength as we build those relationships, as messy and painful as it can be to think about the next step of drawing closer to one another. And God, we also recognize that as a church, you have placed us in a particular place in a particular time to be present with your people, to give room for those who feel lonely or those who feel lost, that we would be a kind of a new family that helps you draw them into community with you, to know your love, to know the tender whisper that you want to share. And so would you just shape us in this way as we continue to take the book of Genesis seriously that you've given us to live by these profound truths and to help us grow closer to you and one another. And so be with us as we learn to do this. Would you go before us even in in our situations, in our relationships, in our places? Give us a special strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks everyone. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, Before you take off, I want to remind you we have a a prayer space here, the prayer team who would love to just take the time to pray with you. Uh, Otherwise, again, pay attention to some of the midweek things coming up, Bible study, marriage course, not too late to sign up. And have a great week. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.